Did you know that Delaware has endless discoveries? The first state invites you to explore miles of beaches and boardwalks, dozens of unique breweries, award-winning restaurants, some of the country's best state parks, beautiful garden estates, and even tax-free shopping. There's plenty of fun for the entire family and more. Find trip ideas and all the info you need to plan your Delaware discoveries at visitdelaware.com. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. This episode is brought to you by the New York Historical Society and their fascinating podcast, For the Ages. Host David M. Rubenstein interviews the nation's foremost historians on a wide range of topics, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped America. In the book, And There Was Light, Abraham Lincoln and the American Struggle, celebrated historian and writer John Meacham discusses a president who governed a divided country and has much to teach us about this time of polarization and political crisis. The power of Lincoln's story illustrates the ways and means of politics in a democracy, the roots and durability of racism, and the capacity of conscience to shape events. And explore the story of the bald eagle with Pulitzer Prize-winning environmental historian Jack E. Davis, who delves into the story of America's most famous bird in a special two-part episode. The first show focuses on the natural habitat of the American eagle, its hunting and mating habits, and migratory patterns. And part two discusses how the bald eagle came to be tied to American identity and government, the importance of bald eagles in Native American cultures, and how modern conservation efforts arose despite the hunting of bald eagles in the early American Republic. That's For the Ages, available on Apple and Spotify. On a cold, dark evening in December... Three people huddle over the counter of a late-night diner named Phillies in Greenwich Village. A man wearing a fedora is in a deep state of concern next to a woman in red. Their body language suggests a tension as potent as their coffee and cigarette. Are they plotting something? Or is their affair over? Another man, seen only from the back, appears lost in thought, isolated within a vast sea of darkness. What is he doing up at this hour? A fourth person, a bartender or server, looks at his customers, caught up even bewildered by the general sense of mystery. We witness this scene through a strangely large window on a corner with an unusually wide sidewalk. It seems like a scene from a Hollywood movie, but this restaurant does not exist. The name of the painting is Nighthawks, among the most recognizable works of art in American history. But do you know what it's really about? December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor. Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia says, stay home. He sends that sense of fear and paranoia out through the whole city. And for perhaps the first time, there are empty streets. And Hopper makes this painting 
in six weeks. It's finished in January of 1942. He is capturing that exact moment in which nobody was on the street. On today's show, we're looking at the life of one of New York's greatest artists, a man who captured the life and solitude of the city, from the automats and chop suey restaurants to the passing views from the elevated train. The Bowery Boys episode 404, Nighthawks and Automats, Edward Hopper's New York. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today's show is inspired by a little jaunt to the Whitney Museum of American Art we made last week to check out Mm -hmm. their current show, Edward Hopper's New York, which features paintings and etchings and other beautiful things that reveal the artist's relationship with the city. Now, although Hopper is also deeply connected with Cape Cod's and Maine's artistic scenes, it was New York where he did most of his painting, from an apartment in a historic building on Washington Square Park. Today, that building is owned by New York University, and it sits within the Greenwich Village Historic District. Edward Hopper painted more than the village. His views of New York, however, are different than how the city actually appeared. For one thing, his paintings and street scenes are never crowded. And in many cases, if there are people depicted in his paintings, it's usually a woman, his wife, Josephine Nivison, who modeled for him for most of his career. Now, Joe was far more than just a model, as you'll find out today. But there is something else somewhat captivating about Edward Hopper's New York. He painted steadily through the first half of the 20th century, but his New York is not a city of skyscrapers or taxi cabs. Mm -mm. Hopper captures more pedestrian scenes, whether it be in a diner, a person lost in thought in a restaurant, or an usher enjoying a quiet break inside an old movie palace. His paintings evoke so many different emotions, Um, although I must say they they don't exactly evoke whimsy, Greg. Nobody is really (laughs) having a party here in Edward Hopper's New York. No, these aren't good times. These aren't jazz age good times. It isn't like Edward Hopper's birthday party from 1933, (laughs) a table for one, a guy sitting (laughs) overlooking a cake by himself. But so many words have been used to describe these images. Contemplation, loneliness, even peacefulness. And his paintings are as powerful, really, as a movie or as a play. In fact, they're often, they often seem like they're staged like a play. So today we'll be telling his story as well as Joe's story. And we're not telling it alone. Later on in the show, we'll be joined by Kathleen Motes-Benowitz, executive director of the Edward Hopper House in Nyack, New York, and art historian Rena Toby, and they'll share their insights on the mysterious nature of Edward Hopper's New York. So, Tom, how are we starting today's story? Well, Hopper's story doesn't start in New York City at all, but rather 30 miles north of New York in the small shipbuilding town of Nyack on the western bank of the Hudson River just across from Terrytown. It was here in Nyack on July 22nd, 1882, that Edward was born to parents Garrett and Elizabeth Hopper. 
His father ran a dry goods store, G.H. Hopper Dry Goods, at 10 South Broadway in Nyack, just a couple blocks away from their home at 82 North Broadway. The Hopper family was Baptist and, and attended services at the Baptist church just a block away from their house. And that all sounds very, you know, like our town. You know, Nyack oh, yeah. recently appeared on a, a Bowery Boys podcast. I believe there was a haunted house there. But of course, Nyack today is a very pretty town with cute shops and restaurants and hilly streets that go straight down to the Hudson River. Yes, and so much of the small town that Hopper knew at the time still stands today. I mean, Nyack's population today is only just over 7,000 people. When you visit the the town, you know, everywhere you look, there are these lovely Victorian and Queen Anne-style homes that date back to the late 19th century. Today, his childhood home still stands, the original two-story wooden structure with a front porch topped with wisteria. It was enlarged the year that he was born, in 1882. And today, it operates as the Edward Hopper House Museum and Study Center. I headed up to to Nyack yesterday to walk through their current exhibition called Edward Hopper's Boyhood on the Hudson River and Emerging Artistic Vision. The exhibit hangs on the walls of what had been the parlor and dining room and other downstairs rooms, and it tells the story of how Hopper's artistic talents and his love for New York developed here, in this house, during his childhood. I was taken on a tour by the museum's executive director, Kathleen Motz-Benowitz, who led me upstairs to see the room where he was born. And it was his bedroom for most of his boyhood and young adult years. It's a room on the front of the house, looking straight down a hill at the Hudson River. So we're now standing in the bedroom where Edward Hopper was born in 1882. That's right. This uh, room is really special. The views from this room are of the Hudson River and of the street below. Um, He could watch all kinds of activity every day going back and forth along North Broadway. And you're not joking. I mean, from here, we can look out these windows right down to the Hudson. We're looking down. I see see the river just, what, like a block or two down? It's just a block away. And just peel back the modern layers of the high-rise apartment building and the tree line would have been much smaller. But also at the end of this block would have been docks and boat building and lumber yards um, because Nyack at the time was a commercial maritime town. Uh, And he could have rambled even at the age of five down to watch boat building. And and we know he learned to sail on this river. It was his playground. But we're also just a couple blocks away from the main street, right, from from downtown. Absolutely. You know, this house was the edge of downtown, and it was a mixed commercial neighborhood then. Across the street was a piano and organ factory, actually. But it was very convenient for his family because, just like today, you can walk out your house and walk to everything. And his father, Garrett Hopper, had a dry goods store just at Main Street and Broadway. And that's where, you know, Hopper also helped out. Um, the other thing that's really interesting about the, the little trek from here to downtown is that all the commercial buildings that you see were built around the time of his birth, um, so in the late 70s to the early 80s, and they're all a low-rise, two- to three 
story building that you see him celebrating in all his paintings of New York City. And that's really what's so special about Nyack is that the village has retained the architectural and topographical character of Hopper's time. It has really not changed. And amongst the commercial buildings are also these beautiful Victorian houses that he also is drawn to paint um, in his mature work. What was his childhood like in Nyack? Well, his childhood was one, as we've discovered, of creativity. He was encouraged to draw. I think he was had a pencil in his hand as soon as he could walk. And any scrap of paper, any inside of book covers, any anything he would draw on. Um, there are examples in the gallery downstairs of um, drawings of soldiers, probably toy soldiers on the back of church tickets. Uh-huh. Um, you know, all kinds of things like that. But his um, mother was creative and her family was creative and drawing was a very much part of their family education. Part of what we're doing with our current exhibition, but also our interpretation as the house, is really focusing on what is it that we see in Edward Hopper's drawings that show us what he was interested in Nyack. You know, what was it that fascinated him? And there were many things that fascinated him, and they become tenants of his mature work. Mm-hmm. And those things are what? The architecture, the people, the lights, the river? Um, there's the river, interior views of stores and of theaters. Mm-hmm. There's lone workers fixing bicycles or delivering goods. And, um, and as his ability to draw expands and improves, his sketchbooks are filled with little architectural details of houses that he passes by, household items that may be in the house. Mm -hmm. So he has this very creative childhood then that's nurtured by his mother. And I was reading that they would frequently go to New York as well. The family would head down to New York. How would they get there? Um, They would go a couple of different ways. They could go by train. Um, There was a train here in Nyack. Um, It was a New New Jersey line. It didn't go directly to Midtown, but it went down to lower Manhattan vis-a-vis probably Jersey City. Also took them to the shore where they also would go on vacation. They could also take the ferry uh, that went constantly back and forth to Terrytown to catch what we call the Hudson Line today. This was, of course, years before the Tappan Zee Bridge. Yes. The, matter of fact, the Tappan Zee Bridge is where it is because it follows the line of the ferry path. Mm-hmm. And they could have even gone by, by carriage. I mean, they had a carriage, I mean, earlier on. But yes, going to New York was something that they did. The mother, uh, Lizzie Griffiths Hopper, came from a family that that had some means. I mean, I wouldn't call them wealthy, but culture, you know, was very important. We also know that Garrett Hopper, his father, was a, you know, incredible lover of books and the classics. Edward Hopper learned German in school, but there were French and German books in the house. So it was a house, even though very small, uh, and, and they were of middle merchant class, they, worldly. Worldly. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're we're standing in this room with pine wood floors, beautiful kind of painted beige walls, white window frames looking out onto the street, and a, a tall wooden bed um, next to us, along with a side table and a dresser and an easel in the corner that's been set up. Now, this is, I take it, just to put us in the mood, or did he actually have an easel in his bedroom? So this room is a reimagined, reinterpreted 
because there were no photographs that exist mm -hmm. of the room at, at Hopper's time. However, what we do have are paintings that incorporate the bedroom, which we oh. looked at that are um, currently in the um, Whitney's collection. They give references to what the room color was, the kind of furniture, the fact that he actually had his self-portrait hanging in his room, which... Um, all these things are here? here? Yes, which this, of course, is a reproduction of the, paint, of the portrait from around 1904 at the Whitney, but that it posits him as a mature artist, gentleman mm -hmm. artist, um, someone who's has success on his face, yeah. um, even though it wasn't in his pocket at that time. <laughs> Kathleen then led me through the museum's exhibition, and we wound up downstairs in the back of the Hopper House. So we're standing in the old kitchen. Yes, this is the um, kitchen that was added in 1882, the year that Edward Hopper was born. Um, there was a parlor and a kitchen on the ground floor that were added. Hard to imagine what that construction scene was like with having a two-year-old sister and an infant. <laughs> Chaotic. Know, yeah, exactly. But in this kitchen, we're featuring um, Edward Hopper's bicycle, which was stayed here in the house the entire time it was in the basement or, or so. It, it has wood wheels, um, which have <laughs> shown a little worse for wear. It's incredible. Um, it's hanging up uh, next to the fireplace, so above the what I guess would have been the stove. Exactly, exactly. Um, it gives you a sense of his his stance and his size. We know from his drawings that he t rode his bicycle all over the area. How long then would, would Edward live in this house? So Edward Hopper, as I said before, was born in 1882, and he lived here until 1908. We thought it was 1910, but the current scholarship from the Whitney exhibition has determined that it was around 1908 that he departed. When he's about 26. Exactly. Well, Kathy Benowitz, thank you so much again for war, for showing me around um, Edward Hopper's home and hometown, and uh, we hope to get back out here soon. Thanks so much. Well, we're delighted to have you, and this is just terrific, and we look forward to others who listen to your podcast to come up and experience it on their own as well. So that sounds like it was a great trip to Nyack, and now I am actually kind of curious about that bike. When you do see it, you think, oh, right, yeah, Hopper was really tall. I mean, he was 6'3 or 6'4, you know, as a young man. I mean, he must have been very striking, but it sometimes also made him quite self-conscious and shy. So Hopper was living in this house when he began going to school in New York City in the year 1899, commuting between there and Nyack. Yes, first at the New York School of Illustrating on West 34th Street, meaning that he'd likely take the New Jersey train down to Jersey City or Hoboken and take a ferry across. And after about a year, he transferred to the New York School of Art on West 57th Street. So that sounds like a whole lot of time on trains and on ferries all of which all of which he'd paint at some point in even during these years and don't forget that also once he arrived in the city then he would also board elevated trains to get where he's going which gave him a perspective on the city that would definitely figure into his paintings yeah literally we're talking about the perspective here the vantage point high above the street you know looking into neighboring buildings catching quick glimpses of domestic life as the train passed by. Uh, he experienced this already 
as a student and would throughout the rest of his life as long as the elevated, you know, operated. And at the New York School of Art, he had some really notable instructors, including William Merritt Chase, who taught him painting, and Robert Henry, who encouraged his students to head out into the city sketching scenes of real life, which he would do. Although it is worth mentioning that throughout his artistic career, the cities that he would produce in sketches and on canvases would be really kind of eerily unpopulated, which has been noted and not very diverse. The Whitney's exhibition organizer, Kim Conady, writes in the opening chapter of the exhibition's book, quote, Hopper staunchly resisted the more overt social critique identified with these urban realists. Unlike contemporaries such as Bellows and Reginald Marsh, Hopper left out the city's crowds of people and its booming immigrant population, prompting the nagging question of what Hopper chose to overlook, given what he would have seen. And she notes the, quote, nearly uniformly whiteness of his figures. But later adds, these considerations are a critical reminder that Hopper's New York has always been a personal reflection of the city, with all the limitations this carries with it. So he's down here in New York, essentially learning the ropes of how to be a good artist. But the whole time, he's still living up in Nyack. But then in October 1906, he headed off to Paris to study and paint outside and stayed there through the following June of 1907. At the Whitney's exhibition, you can read some of his letters back to his mother from Paris. And he is just gushing in them about how beautiful the city is People here in Paris seem to be actually relaxing outside, you know, at, at cafes and enjoying their lives. I mean, he's like sounding in a way like every study abroad student in Paris <laughs> ever. He really loved Paris and, and he did some lovely paintings there, including the Pont des Arts in 1907, a, br a bridge that crosses the River Seine to the Louvre that many listeners will know well. He would then move back to Nyack in 1907 and then make a big move away from home to New York City in 1908. And he rented his first small studio at 244 West 14th Street. So he was setting down his roots here on 14th Street, setting down his easel. Yes. Um, how was he supporting himself? Uh, well, he was, he became a commercial artist. He was trained for it. And he designed magazine covers, advertisements, promotional materials. He hit the city pavement, knocking on doors, you know, showing off his portfolio, getting gigs. He was, he was a freelancer. And it doesn't really sound like he enjoyed his work at all. Because hmm. he, even though he could do this and was good at this, he wanted to do more serious art. I mean, this is the story of all budding artists who come to New York, right? Mm -hmm. This did pay the bills, so all of yes. this is very relatable. Yes, and he would then use those gigs that he got to pay for two more extended painting trips back to Paris in, in 1909 and again in 1910. When he finally moved back to New York for good in 1910, he took a, a new apartment on East 59th Street. And once he was back he began to turn his attention as an artist away from, you know, these pretty portraits of Paris, focusing instead on the grittier streets of New York City that surrounded him now. And we'll visit the New York of Edward Hopper's imagination right after this. 
On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Ever been to Delaware? If not, now's the time to visit. You'll find a lot of fun in a little state. Since you can drive anywhere in the state in a couple of hours, you'll spend less time driving and more time enjoying. Explore from the bays to the beaches, stroll the boardwalks, and have an oceanside bonfire. Get a taste of Delaware at one of the award-winning restaurants and enjoy a local craft brew. See the first state's unique historic landmarks and experience Delaware's endless discoveries. Plan your adventure today at visitdelaware.com. Okay, so he's in the city, spending his days doing commercial art, but he was already painting views of New York. Like He already knew this was something he was passionate for. And for instance, um, one of his more notable paintings from this period is from 1913, and it's an image of the Queensboro Bridge as it stretches out over Blackwell's Island. Now, that bridge had just opened in 1909, and his apartment was just right next to it, right? So it was, mm -hmm. it was something he saw all the time. Another artist might have celebrated its engineering and technical might, but instead, his view of the bridge is rather gloomy and impressionistic. An art term in itself. So can we step back for a second? What was going on in the art world 
at this time? Hadn't things become a little bit more realistic? I mean, definitely in terms of subject matter, there was this group of up-and-coming artists who were taking the American art scene in an edgier direction. They were sort of considered the bad boys of art and were loosely known as the Ashcan School, centered around a handful of artists such as John Sloan and the aforementioned Robert Henry, Mm. who painted everyday scenes, working-class environments, and even moments of nightlife debauchery. Sloan, in fact, who was probably the best known, depicted scenes of, for instance, McSorley's old alehouse and the Tenderloin dance hall called the Haymarket. They were looking at real gritty New York. I mean, it kind yep. of reminds me of the photography of Jacob Rees. Rees would actually influence the Ashcan school artists in the way that they would depict the world. Now, as for Edward Hopper... He was a rising artistic talent, and he too would also be associated with these artists. In fact, in 1913, when Henry and these other guys put together a scandalous art show at the 69th Regiment Armory on Lexington Avenue, Edward Hopper, who was one of Henry's students, was invited to submit a painting. Now, this was a very modest subject. It was just a little sailboat, and the painting was appropriately called Sailing. And this show, the Armory Show of 1913, would really have a profound effect on art in America. And so Hopper was part of this show. And not only did he show a painting, he actually sold it for $250, or around... You know, $7,500 today. So this was a really big deal. And in the wake of this sale, later that year in December, Hopper moved from 59th Street down to 3 Washington Square North, right on the park, in one of a number of Greek Revival row houses that long ago, once upon a time, had been the richest address in Manhattan. Hopper was moving into the row, where where the wealthiest old New Yorkers lived back in the 1830s. Mm -hmm. Now, by the 1880s, many of these single-family homes, once considered most luxurious, uh, were broken up into boarding houses and artist studios. And, you know, Hopper, when he moved in, actually moved into a back apartment, not one facing Washington Square initially. It actually overlooked the Washington Muse which is this charming little alleyway behind them, uh, which would become very important to the world of New York art. And still a a pretty view. Mm -hmm. He had a rear window, if you will. (laughs) Yes, uh uh-huh. So then by 1913, he had sold a painting and had found himself this great studio to live in and work in. Uh, It sounds really like he was off and running as an artist. Um, Not quite, because the commission's did not exactly start rolling in. While he did continue to show his work in galleries around town, and he did receive some minor positive notices by critics, he couldn't actually make a living from this. And he got so discouraged at one point, he even stopped painting entirely, working on etchings and selling those and producing them from a small press in his apartment. So then when did things turn around financially? For him, Well, the year was 1923, a very, very significant year for Hopper, because he not only got his work hanging in a major museum, but he also found the love of his life, a woman named Josephine Nivison. 
She was the secret to Edward Hopper's success. In fact, he found that major museum show because of Joe. So let me introduce her here. She was also an artist based in Greenwich Village. They had known each other up before this point, but it wasn't until the summer of 1923 in Gloucester, Massachusetts, that they became close, painting watercolors side by side and eventually sparking a romance. To quote from author Gary Souter, quote, On arriving home, Joe found an invitation from the Brooklyn Museum to hang six of her watercolors in a show it was mounting of American and European watercolors. At the time, she recommended her neighbor Edward Hopper. As a result, the organizers selected six of Hopper's Gloucester pictures. Critical praise was heaped on Hopper for his vitality and force, making his work one of the high spots of the show. Unquote. Wow. So Joe really opened the door for him. And from this moment... For Edward, there was no looking back. You know, like once those positive reviews start rolling in, uh, mm-hmm. it generates a kind of buzz. I mean, it, it does now, and it did back in the 1920s. By the following year, 1924, he opened a show at the Wren Gallery on Fifth Avenue and 54th Street with 16 paintings, all of which sold and sold quickly. And it was during that summer of 1924 that Edward Hopper and Joe Nivelson finally married. You mentioned that Joe was a painter. What about her career? I mean, it, it seems like she must have also been doing pretty well and established if she was also, you know, being shown at the Brooklyn Museum. Yes, she was more renowned in 1923 than he was, obviously. She had the connections. But over their years together, his career would take precedence. And Joe would operate more or less as Edward's manager. Like, we would not have an Edward Hopper without her. And that has to be very clear when you see his paintings. In fact, we quite literally wouldn't have any of his most famous paintings without her. Because starting in 1925, with a painting called Interior Model Reading, Joe became his artist model. It's really an incredible thing, you know, once you know to look for it. Joe is literally present in most of his most famous paintings. Mm-hmm. If, if you see a woman in an Edward Hopper painting after 1925, you're probably <laughs> seeing his wife and partner, Joe. Yeah, in fact, she often poses as several women in the same painting, as right. she did in one of my favorite Hopper paintings from the year 1929 called Chop Suey, which depicts the interior of a second floor Chop Suey restaurant. Now, as I mentioned in my podcast from a couple years ago on the history of Chinese food in New York, Chop Suey was a breakout dish among New Yorkers during the Jazz Age, and restaurants popped up everywhere in Manhattan. So in this painting, Joe posed as two women who are actually eating together at a table with a big chop suey sign hanging outside. Mm-hmm. You know, it, this is a vintage view of Jazz Age New York. Well, now the Whitney exhibition also includes a number of things from the Hopper archives and the Sanborn archives, their notes and books, including a most astounding collection of ticket stubs. 
uh, from movies and Broadway shows that they took in. It seems like they were constantly out on the town, you know, soaking up the culture and nightlife. Oh, yeah. They saw everything. They enjoyed going out together. Mm -hmm. And they preferred to see everything from the balcony. And Joe, of course, then kept and archived all of these ticket stubs. Many of Hopper's later paintings actually feel like scenes from a stage play and often chooses a vantage point that is sort of slightly above the action. Like you, the, the viewer, are sitting in a balcony or up mm-hmm. in an elevated train looking down. Yeah. And I'll tell you, when you're up at the, the Hopper house in Nyack, you'll actually see that he was sketching the interior of theaters already as a child. His fascination with theaters goes way back. Well, and speaking of theaters... Hopper's paintings would actually go on to influence Hollywood movies, believe it or not. Take, for example, his 1925 painting called House by the Railroad. It depicts a Victorian mansion in Haverstraw, New York, which was a town just north of Nyack. The house is rather gothic Mm -hmm. from another era, but notably cutting across the bottom part of the painting is a railroad track. It's a modern machine world cutting across an old-fashioned way of living. This would be a landmark painting for Hopper. And because in 1927, it was purchased by Stephen Clark of the Singer Sewing Machine Company. And then in 1929, this painting was loaned to the Museum of Modern Art for its very first show highlighting American artists. And then the following year... Clark went ahead and just donated the painting to MoMA and becoming one of this new museum's key acquisitions early on. Wow. And, you know, honestly, when I see this painting now and this gothic house, it's really kind of hard not to think of the house from Hitchcock's Psycho, which came out more than 30 years later in 1960. Well, Tom, that's because Alfred Hitchcock was influenced by Edward Hopper paintings. And there are some very obvious visual similarities between the Haverstraw house and the home of Norman Bates in the movie Psycho decades later. Wow. But, you know, Hopper's influence would be felt in other industries even sooner because over the next few years, into the 1930s, his paintings would inspire writers of detective novels Mm. and then the entire genre of Hollywood film noir. According to art critic Philip French, quote, Hopper loved the movies. And the cinema returned the compliment by turning to him for stylistic inspiration. And film noir became his great love and the area of his chief influence, unquote. So by 1930, Hopper was 48 years old and had really established himself as a professional painter. And unlike, you know, so many other artists who struggled during the Great Depression, Edward Hopper thrived. Do you think that his subject matter, you know, the moody snapshots of city life, no parties, for instance, Mm -hmm. do you think this resonated more with viewers during the Depression? Yes, this is what he had already been painting, right? And and other artists started tackling similar themes, Um, but they kind of needed to catch up with him. The New York Times wrote years later, quote, the Depression brought the attention of the abstractionists back to the American scene. They began to paint it realistically again, 
many in anger because of the poverty and suffering they saw. The revival of realism brought fresh admiration to Mr. Hopper, who had been painting it all along, with steadily improving technique, deepening perception, and a poet's sense of mood. And it's this mood, this sometimes gloomy mood, this mood was suddenly everywhere as the entire country struggled to find jobs and struggled to make sense of life. Hopper's paintings seemed to tap into that, and museums took notice too. In 1930, he painted one of his iconic works, Early Sunday Morning, which he originally called Seventh Avenue Shops. And this painting depicts a a two-story row of brick buildings with shops on the ground floor early in the morning, a bright blue sky above, and very dramatic early morning shadows falling on the sidewalk. I absolutely love this painting. It might be one of my top 10 favorite paintings of New York ever with this barber pole outside Mm -hmm. and nobody around... Like, it seems like it could be a picture of any downtown across the country. Mm -hmm. But then you notice on, like, the top right corner, there's a menacing dark shape. Mm -hmm. There's a large building right next to it, just off canvas. This painting could also be about, you know, a new modern city here on the right overtaking the old. And it resonated with the public and early Sunday morning was purchased by the Whitney in 1930 for $2,000, and it became part of the museum's founding collection. And then the next year, in 1931, the Met bought one of his other big works, Tables for Ladies, a painting that features a waitress bending forward toward a restaurant's window with, with a dining scene behind her. And the model for the waitress was, <laughs> you guessed it, uh, was his wife, Joe. And probably the model for the cashier we see, too. Yes. I'm sure, And the woman yes. dining with her husband. Maybe her husband, too. Um, <laughs> I find the painting interesting for many reasons, um, including, of course, that we're looking through a window at this, you know, everyday moment, but also because of its title, Tables for Ladies. It refers to the fact that restaurants were, by 1931, advertising the fact that they had tables specifically intended for solo female diners. Because by this point, more women than ever were working. And of course, they also needed to eat and needed to eat without any stigma attached, you know, to them dining alone. But my goodness, right? Here we are in the 30s and his fortune has changed in just a small amount of time. Now he has works in the Whitney and in the Met. And in 1933, there was a major one-man retrospective on Hopper held at the MoMA that featured 75 of his works. Um, I found a press release of the exhibition that states, quote, It has been pointed out that the names of Edward Hopper in the world of art, like the signature of Sinclair Lewis in the literary world, connotes Main Street. But Hopper paints without satire. His lighthouses, locomotives, business blocks, barber shops, automats, outmoded houses, and scenes through hotel windows are emphatically, solidly, unashamedly American. So he's pretty much almost the hottest thing in the art world at this time. And meanwhile, this whole time, he's still living at 3 Washington Square North? 
Yes, although in 1932, a top floor apartment in his building opened with two windows overlooking the park. And you know how it is, Greg, when a better apartment opens in your building, (laughs) you take it. He and Joe moved in. You prop your moving boxes into the door and refuse to leave until it's yours. You rip down the apartment for rent sign and you take it yourself. Here they had a small kitchenette, which apparently they they rarely used um, as neither of them was interested in cooking. And so they frequently ate out, you know, in, in sort of modest neighborhood cafeterias and automats. And the, and the studio had a large skylight, perfect for painting. And, and of course, these two windows overlooking the park. And there he set up his easel and his printing press. Unsurprisingly, because now he had a great vantage upon it, he immediately painted the park. Yeah. Uh, and the 1932 painting called Washington Square... And most notable, I think, because Judson Memorial Church is in the background. That's on the southern side of the park. That's right. And a vantage point, you mentioned a vantage point looking down, like in all of his paintings. It's also notable because this is the only painting that he would come back to. He would come back to it decades later to finish off the sky. It's his only double dated canvas. The 1930s were also interesting for Hopper because the couple managed to get out of the city more and to take off more and almost yearly for the summer. Yes, they had already been traveling, of course, up the East Coast to New England to sketch and paint. But during the 1930s, Edward and Joe established themselves as summer residents on Cape Cod. Uh, They started renting a place in Truro in 1930 and then... When Joe inherited some money a few years later, they built their own cottage there in 1934, um, which had a large window overlooking Fisher Beach. And he would produce so many works out on Cape Cod and elsewhere in New England, including Vermont and Maine. Yes, he he made more than 100 paintings and watercolors out on the Cape, including Cape Cod Sunset, Gas, and Rooms by the Sea. But meanwhile, back in New York, he was also producing many very well-known works, including in 1932, Room in New York, in which we are spying on a couple in their apartment who seem dressed to go out. At least she is. He's in business attire. They're not making eye contact. He's reading the newspaper, and she seems to be lost in thought while sort of haphazardly touching a key on a piano. And again, we're looking in from that elevated train vantage point, that slightly above eye point, looking through their window. Right. And trying to determine, are they bored? Are they in a fight? Are they just both lost in thought? Who knows? And during these years, Hopper also painted several paintings that take place inside theaters. Probably my favorite is 1939's New York Movie which depicts the the interior of a movie theater. On the left-hand side, you see a few lone audience members taking in a black-and-white film. But meanwhile, on the right half of the painting, you see a female usher who is dressed in a blue uniform, Joe again, obviously, leaning up against the wall of the theater, chin resting on hand and, and definitely lost in thought. Well, actually, Joe also posed as the audience members. Um, Okay. She's all over this painting. And again, it's like everyone's alone. 
together but alone. It's like a intimate vacancy. Loud silence is the phrase I, I read mm-hmm. during my research. In this very American space, the movie palace. Yes, and and for this painting, as you can see at the Whitney Show, he visited several theaters during 1938 to sketch them and to take notes um, of their various details. So the theater that is depicted in this painting is actually a composite of several New York theaters, including the Palace, the Republic, which is today's new victory, the Globe, today's Lafontaine, and the Strand. All of these still stand today, except the Strand, uh, which was demolished in 1987. And then two years later, Edward Hopper would create his most famous painting of all. We'll get to Nighthawks and the rest of the story after this. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Did you know that Delaware has endless discoveries? The first state invites you to explore miles of beaches and boardwalks, dozens of unique breweries, award-winning restaurants, some of the country's best state parks, beautiful garden estates, and even tax-free shopping. There's plenty of fun for the entire family and more. Find trip ideas and all the info you need to plan your Delaware discoveries at visitdelaware.com. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. In early December of 1941, Hopper sat down and began to paint a scene that was an accumulation of images familiar with other Hopper paintings. I mean, even paintings we've described already in this show seep in through this one as well. A dreamlike intersection in the West Village, a darkened street, and a view into a diner through these otherworldly windows. The whole thing just seems off. (laughs) <laughs> the only thing that feels accurate to say, actually, is that it's a scene depicting people gathered in one place late at night. And as a result, the painting is called Nighthawks. And by the way, that title, of course, you guessed it, the title came from Joe. And Nighthawks has become one of the most recognizable American paintings ever, right up there with American Gothic by Grant Wood and Christina's World by Andrew Wyeth. Everybody knows Nighthawks. Mm-hmm. I must say, like, this really is the painting of my dreams it's because yes. it's diners, it's late nights, it's fedoras, it's, <laughs> it's basically Twin Peaks before the TV show Twin Peaks existed. It's all in this painting. Right. It's like hanging out drinking coffee... 
and nothing else really late at night. I mean, I remember being inspired as a student, you know, before moving to New York as a teenager, thinking like, wow, I want to be part of that. I didn't see the gloom. I, I, I found it very aspirational. I think you see what you want to. I think that's why it's such an <laughs> iconic painting. Well, in a few minutes, I'll be speaking with our guest, Rena Toby, about the motivations behind this painting's creation. But when it was finished in January of 1942, it was almost instantly received as a pinnacle of greatness. And within months, purchased by the Art Institute of Chicago, where it still resides today. He followed this up almost immediately with a painting called Hotel Lobby, with three individuals in a forlorn, again, gloomy hotel that one would almost certainly never want to stay in, ever. <laughs> it's not very classy. But in its day, this painting was probably even more critically acclaimed than Nighthawks. And interestingly, two of the people in the painting are believed to actually be Edward Hopper and, of course, his wife, Joe. Wow. Wow. But of course, they were older now, too. Joe was 60. Edward was 61. So he was, he was reaching a, a level of respect in the painting mm -hmm. world for this style, a style that was about to seem rather quaint and old-fashioned. Right. Post-war, you may be referring to the hot new art trend of the day, abstract expressionism, a non-realist movement which dispensed with recognizable forms, abstracting all of its subjects into drips, blobs, streaks, color fields, really just any sort of visual anarchy you could come up with. And Greenwich Village was central to this movement as well, with artists like Jackson Pollock and William de Kooning actually working nearby Hopper. In fact, Pollock lived and worked in McDougal Alley, just a block and a half from Hopper's studio. So, in other words, Greenwich Village was still the center of the art world, but mm -hmm. of course the neighborhood itself was also changing too. And, and Hopper would actually have to, to fight to keep his home here on Washington Square. Big change to the square and the whole area, which threatened the traditional, historic, old-school character. In 1947, the ever-expanding New York University, you know, the... This is constantly a story in New York. They're ever-expanding. And they took over the leases of many of these buildings, including Edward Hopper's building at number three. They raised the rent and stopped renewing leases, claiming that the buildings were being converted into veterans' housing. It later hmm. was revealed, of course, that no, they were, in fact, just being turned into offices. Hopper had been living here since uh, 1913. And Joe had been here with him since the 1920s. They obviously didn't want to leave. And kicking out a master of American painting wasn't exactly going to be a good look either for the university. Right. A university where, you know, by the way, great artists had studied, taught. Great mm -hmm. artists, of course, lived around the university. This is a historically artistic neighborhood. So this was real bad press for NYU. <laughs> the couple even spoke to newspapers and voiced their opposition. In fact, I can't believe we're introducing him into the story, but Edward Hopper even wrote Parks Commissioner Robert Moses 
about this issue from a letter dated March 9th, 1947, quote, I am writing to enlist your interest in the situation that has arisen regarding Washington Square, unquote, and then goes on to describe the situation to Robert Moses, which is a, a, a pretty interesting thing to assume that he didn't know what was happening. <laughs> and and how did Robert Moses feel about this? Was Hopper able to persuade Moses over to his cause? In a written response from Moses, quote, Would not the acquisition of property by the university be the very best way of preserving the character of the square and in extending the life and usefulness of some of the fine old buildings? Unquote. As you can see, he basically just brushed him off. Moses seems to have very high hopes for how NYU will become stewards of the park. Uh Uh-huh. Well, in the end, Edward Hopper and his wife were allowed to stay for as long as they liked. And they did so for the rest of their lives. But I don't mean to suggest that Hopper was just engaged in the neighborhood when his own home was threatened. I think we could definitely label him a preservationist. He was always pushing back against any changes to Washington Square, this area which meant so much to him, as though the place were his own backyard. Because, you know, remember, back in the 40s, Robert Moses had very much intended to bifurcate the park with the highway. He intended to radically change the area. Yes, which in fact galvanized village residents like Jane Jacobs and Shirley Hayes and and many others to become community organizers. And then hovering hovering over all of it, literally from his window on high, was Mm -hmm. Edward Hopper. Edward and Joe Hopper had become fixtures of Washington Square, almost as much as the architecture and the benches, and the street lamps. He certainly captured the park in his paintings as no other had done. He continued to paint here and continued showing at local galleries into the 1950s, although his health was greatly deteriorating by this time and soon receded from the spotlight, even as he entered, I I think without argument, the pantheon of great American artists. And even in the later years of his life, he had two retrospectives at the Whitney Museum in 1950 and in 1964. In reporting on that 1964 show, the New York Times declared, quote, The earliest painting in Edward Hopper's retrospective dates from 1908. The latest was painted last year. That stretch of 55 years has seen dozens of art movements rise and decline, including the School of American Realism that, flourishing under the name of regionalism, comes as close as any to the more important school that is composed of a single man, Edward Hopper himself and alone. He has remained in the good graces of even the abstract painters because, alone among American realists, he works in a way easily connectable with abstraction in the careful disposition, the inventive purity of his surface pattern. And two, because some painters are just so good that their merit is recognizable by all but the fanatic fringe, even among artists who work under contrasting persuasions. Edward Hopper died in his studio here at 3 Washington Square North on May 15, 1967, 
and his wife, Josephine Hopper, died on March 6, 1968. Both are buried at Oak Hill Cemetery in Nyack, New York. Now, believe it or not, not only did they not get rid of Edward Hopper's studio after he died, it's still preserved today, and it has been open to the public in the past, although closed for the past few years, of course. Hopefully, it will be on the roster of Open House New York again soon. That happens Mm -hmm. every October in New York. That's actually how I saw the studio a few years ago, which is just such a profound experience, especially if you have any kind of artistic inclination. When you're inside there, you can see his original easel and that etching press, believe it or not, even his old stove. And of course, you can head up to Nyack to visit the Edward Hopper House Museum and Study Center, where you can visit um, his childhood bedroom and see that easel as well. And of course, head up to the cemetery to visit their plots, uh, which I did just yesterday. It's really remarkable, Greg, because when you're standing there at his gravesite, it's so high up on this hill. You know, there are so many hills hmm. in Nyack, and you're really high. And for standing standing right there, you just have this amazing view with the town of Nyack below and the Hudson River before you and the Tappan Zee Bridge. It's a view that I'm sure he would have loved to have painted. Well, so today we've given an overview of his life in New York. But to really get an understanding of that particular strange, magical nature of his artwork, we needed, of course, to talk to an art historian. We love art and we're historians, but we're not art historians. No. So last week, I sat in on this marvelous online lecture about Edward Hopper given by American art historian Rena Toby. So I rang up Rena. And we had a marvelous chat about the meanings of Hopper's art. Rena, thank you for joining me on the Bowery Boys. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having (laughs) me. It's such a treat to be here. Yes, I so greatly enjoyed um, your online presentation with the New York Adventure Club. And the way that you presented Hopper's art was really fascinating. It made me realize that there's actually so much more in those paintings than even meets the eye. He's very challenging. If we stop and look and slow down, Mm -hmm. we will see a world that is not what it appears to be on first glance. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it's a real (laughs) eye-opener to engage with Mr. Hopper. The thing that strikes me is that he is a painter of architecture. Exteriors, interiors, strange walls and windows. Why do you think he was so interested in the architecture of New York? What appealed to him about this in ways that maybe even other artists didn't quite see? Well, first of all, he actually went to architecture school for a very short amount of time. Mm -hmm. He didn't finish, but he always had that interest. And his early, early influences included the Impressionists. And what the Impressionists did was paint the effects of light. And he said what he loved was the effect of light on the side of a house. So he Mm -hmm. always had that interest. Then when he comes to New York... He has a kind of push-pull with the modernity of New York. He really was an anti-change person. He really wanted things to be the way they were. And New York's not like that. It's Mm -hmm. never been like that. So he uses architecture like a character 
in his stories that he's presenting to us. The architecture holds the space, but it doesn't do it in the way that makes logical sense. <laughs> he will twist to the side or open up an angle that isn't quite how buildings work or make sidewalks too wide and too <laughs> clean so that he's arresting. What he wants to have architecture do is tease us with the familiar, but make us stop. And then that architecture is holding a very interesting narrative. What is it like he's truly trying to say, do you think, about New York? And, I mean, it's hard to say because he literally is painting for decades, so he could be saying very different things. But is there something that we can gauge, especially if we see, say, the, the Whitney show, that we can come away from and, and say, wow, Edward Hopper feels this way about New York City? I think he had very mixed feelings about New York City. I think he adored its theatricality. So he will set up stage sets with his paintings. He will put people in a picture window that you would normally have on Fifth Avenue with, with retail merchandise. He will exaggerate the play aspects. Let's be people in a play. But at the same time, he found an ugliness in the city. Now, he was attracted to some of that ugliness. He depicted some of that ugliness. I just think he won't let it be easy. He won't let it be a celebration. The urban realists you talk about, John Sloan, and even going all the way up to the 30s with Reginald Marsh, they're celebrating the city. It's an exuberance <laughs> about the city and the way they describe it. Hopper is restrained and constrained. He pulls back. He doesn't give us joy. He's not going to be that simple. He is painting in an era where the city is just growing up in massive ways, but that's not the city that he cares for, the city that even he wants to even depict at all. And in fact, his wife, Josephine Nivison Hopper, wrote that one of his paintings of a building was like a dowager from another era, and she called the <laughs> painting self-portrait because he was a kind of throwback to the 19th century. He just hated cars and flying and skyscraper. He hated all that. He didn't want to <laughs> live in a city like that. And where was he? He was in Greenwich Village in the middle. Now, I, I want to just go back really quickly to one thing you say, which is, I think, very fascinating about the staginess, because, of course, he loved going to Broadway. Like, he and Joe went to Broadway shows all the time. But I would say that also his relationship with the Broadway stage comes through very strikingly, especially when you know that in the back of your mind and you're looking at how some of these are, are kind of almost blocked, right, in the way that they're presented. Indeed, he's blocking, he's, he's stagecrafting, and then he uses light the way the theater uses light. One of the things he loved to do was walk the streets of New York with his sketch pad, and he would make fast sketches, and he would do this day and night. And he would then go back to his studio, put sketches together in a mashup sort of way. It was never straightforward. <laughs> he would never just show you one theater. He'd show you architecture from four theaters that he put together in his own Hopper-esque kind of way. And then he would craft it as if we were then raising the curtain on a stage set. Like a dreamscape that he was making himself of New York City and not meant to be realistic. On that note, then, let's just take those ideas into probably his most famous painting, Nighthawks. It's so ingrained that I think that if you don't even know the name Edward Hopper, you know this painting. Why did this rise to such an important place in American culture? Because 
all of the elements in the painting, like the diner and the windows, the dark street and the people, lonely people, you know, he's painted all of these themes like again and again throughout his career. You know, I, I'm going to be supposing for us here. And the yeah. reason I think is it's, it pinpoints a particular moment. So, yes, it has all of those themes that Hopper uses. But, you know, along the way, the critics weren't always saying, woohoo, Hopper. You know, they weren't. It was a, mm -hmm. a mixed bag. But when it came to this painting, Nighthawks, it was made in a very specific moment. So let's think about that moment. December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor. Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia says, oh boy, if it can happen in Hawaii, it can certainly happen in New York City. And he tells people, stay home. He sends that sense of fear and paranoia out through the whole city. And for perhaps the first time, there are empty streets. And Hopper makes this painting start to finish in six weeks. It's finished in January of 1942. He is capturing that exact moment, that exact mood, that weird time, an out-of-reality kind of time in New York City in which nobody was on the street. And that just isn't how we know our city, even after 9-11, when people were called into community to rebuild the spirit of the city. That's not where this painting landed. And I think everyone agreed he captured that split second of the beginning of the war and how that felt to people. And when we look at that painting, and there's a lot of complexity in it beyond that, but when we look at that painting, we know it as really capturing something that probably hasn't ever happened again. The only comparable time I could imagine. It brings me back a little bit, I guess, to March 2020. Exactly. And the diner where these characters are, there's no door in or out. They're trapped in the diner. It is very much as if the early part of the pandemic. But let's give another one a shout out. I would, you know, that is perhaps his most famous, but there, of course, there are many that are really in the canon of American art. Which Edward Hopper is your favorite. Oh, golly. Like, what, I mean, you probably have like a million. <laughs> Let's pick one. I know. I'm going to make you pick one right now. Okay. So uh, I guess I would have to pick Automat from 1927. First of all, I love Automats and it brings mm -hmm. up my childhood. It, it just gives me memories. And when I encounter Hopper's Automat, it's nothing like my memories. Nothing. <laughs> and part of that is Automats were the beehive of New York City. You know, there were over 50 Automats, 10,000 people going on average every day. And yet what Hopper shows us is one woman by herself, lost in solitary thought, seated at that marble round top table, that's what the automats used to attract in single women so they'd feel safe at all hours, day or night, to come into the automat. But she's sitting in the doorway, so she's in the busiest place of the automat. There are no other figures, but we would know there would be people all over the place, including going downstairs behind her. Also, the little details that don't add up. She's wearing her coat and her hat. She hasn't taken it off. She's wearing one glove. She's taken one glove off. So we know we're in the winter. She's drinking a cup of coffee. She has a plate where she had a nosh, maybe some kind of pastry. Well, what in the world is she doing? 
She's sitting in the doorway. She hasn't taken her coat off, but she's in reverie, lost in her thoughts. So is she meaning to stay there for a long time or is she slurping and running? Well, she doesn't act like she's slurping and running. So already we're starting to wonder what's going on in her mind. Then we have the strangeness of the environment. Mm -hmm. Huge plate glass window behind her. But instead of showing us a streetscape, which is what we would see in New York City because there's lights on the street, we get the reflection of this kind of weird psychological expression of the unconscious uh, that reflects the fluorescent lights of the automat. Just everything about the scene is a little twerked, just a little out of kink. <laughs> it's a mystery. It's a, such a mystery, right? It is. They're, they're like puzzles, every single one of them. And you can look for all the little details that don't add up. There are a lot more in this painting, but I'll, I'll yeah. let you move on. <laughs> let me just wrap up here by sort of asking what does Edward Hopper mean or what can Edward Hopper paintings mean for us today? I think why Edward Hopper has this enduring appeal is that he is presenting a view of the city and its people in familiar enough ways that we have in our experience how big and complex and uh, unpredictable and, and ever-changing New York City is, that Hopper gives us a way to find our place in it. Now, we may not agree <laughs> with what he's showing us, but he's giving us a way in, a framework to hold how complex modern life is. And that modern life isn't all that different than how we live today, as you already pointed out with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I think the narrative quality of it, the story, which isn't always an easy story, and New York's not always easy, and New York isn't straightforward, and New York can be a puzzle, that he's giving us a microcosm in which we can find ourselves. Rena, thank you so much for spending time with me today talking about Edward Hopper. It was a thrill. I kind of think that I'm actually going back to the show since <laughs> listening to you talk about it and sort of seeing what else I can appreciate it from his art. And thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor and a pleasure. We would like to thank Kathleen Motes-Benowitz at the Edward Hopper House up in Nyack and art historian Rena Toby for joining us on the show today. For more details on upcoming talks by Rena, just visit her website, renatoby, that's R-E-N-A-T-O-B-E-Y dot com. And for more on the Edward Hopper House, including opening hours and tickets, head to edwardhopperhouse.org. And, of course, if you'd like to check out that exhibition at the Whitney Museum, Edward Hopper's New York, it is on view until March 5th, 2023. And if you're listening to this show beyond that date, you can visit their website and they have great resources on Edward Hopper over there. And visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for pictures from our various Edward Hopper-related trips that we've been <laughs> taking to Nyack, to the Whitney Museum, and of course, to Washington Square Park. A big thank you to everyone who supports the Bowery Boys podcast on Patreon.com. For all of you over there, we hope that you are enjoying our new 
Bowery Boys Patreon only show called Side Streets. And hey, it's got kind of a link to today's show, Tom. I never oh, I didn't put that true. together. In the newest show, we actually talk about our favorite New York movie theaters, many of which are now gone and some of which may be in danger of closing soon. You know, I think Edward and Joe would have been good guests on that particular show since they go to since they went to so many movie theaters and would have much to say on the subject. And a previous uh, Side Streets episode we did was on our favorite restaurants including many diners. So so yeah, I I guess we're we've been sort of inadvertently hopper-esque in um in our <laughs> subject matter We've drag. been hoppering around New York City, would you say? <laughs> yes. So please join the fun at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. And there's more fun waiting for you over at the Gilded Gentleman podcast. Some of Carl's latest shows, um, well, they're not very Edward Hopper-esque, let's just say. In fact, in fact, the newest show is actually on the Gilded Age's most outrageous parties. <laughs> so oh. those would not have popped up in an Edward Hopper painting, but they would have popped up in all sorts of other artistic delights, including the latest episode of The Gilded Gentleman. And meanwhile, you can also join our group in the streets over at BoweryBoysWalks.com for some kind of hoppery topics. Uh, Greg, we've got... We have, of course, the Jane Jacobs versus Robert Moses walking tour. Oh, there we go. Uh, there you go. Um, that's happening frequently along with... Gilded Age Promenades, um, up Fifth Avenue, along with the Hidden History of Greenwich Village Tour, and so many more. Uh, join us in the streets over at BoweryBoysWalks.com. So thank you very much for joining us this week on this artistically-minded episode of the Bowery Boys. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Ever been to Delaware? If not, now is the time to visit. You'll find a lot of fun in a little state. Since you can drive anywhere in the state in a couple of hours, you'll spend less time driving and more time enjoying. Explore from the bays to the beaches, stroll the boardwalks, and have an oceanside bonfire. Get a taste of Delaware at one of the award-winning restaurants and enjoy a local craft brew. See the first state's unique historic landmarks and experience Delaware's endless discoveries. Plan your adventure today at visitdelaware.com.